0: Our brains are wired to latch on to stories and to understand stories. You know if you think about history and the way that we've evolved as as a species, you know before we had writing, we were communicating and it had to be in a in a meaningful and and impactful way.
1: Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. By holding in-depth conversations with forward thinkers from the design and construction industry, as well as others in the know, each episode of Construction Disruption digs into an industry that is always changing with new products, new designs, new practices, and new technologies. Construction Disruption is created and sponsored by Isaiah Industries, the manufacturer of specialty metal roofing systems and other building materials. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries. Our co-host is our sales manager, Seth Heckman. Last episode, I tried to give you a nickname, and I was trying to give you the nickname of Shredder because you're an accomplished guitar player. If you recall I called you Slicer instead.
2: <laughs> well, Slash is an accomplished guitar well, player. So I that did think about works. that, yeah. But
1: Slicer still kind of gives a Friday the Thirteenth <laughs> feel. So, uh, my apologies for that. Anyway, and then behind the scenes, we have our creative director Brian Bell and our content creator Ethan Young uh, doing all that important production stuff that uh, covers up all of our flubs and my complete loss of train of thought and things when that happens as well. So. Um, anyway, things going well for you today, Seth. Yep, going great.
2: Looking forward to it. Good.
1: Well, let's jump right into it. Um, today's guest is Mr. Jeff Eccles, President of Echo Engagement based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he's also Director of Brand Strategy for Entree Architect. Jeff's career path has taken a couple of twists over the years, and that gives him a unique perspective from which to speak to us. Jeff graduated from Ball State University's College of Architecture and Planning in 1993. He is Ball State's second most famous graduate after, of course, David Letterman, I think. Uh, When he graduated in 1993, he entered a bit of a tough job market for architects at the time. And over time, he worked for architectural firms in Chicago and Indianapolis. But he always found himself kind of keeping gravitating toward roles in the area of startup and market development for the firms he worked for. I think like all of us in really any type of business, marketing ends up so often being a much bigger part of things um, for architects as well uh, than what we really thought it would be as part of our business or our practice or our trade. And uh, that is really where Jeff has landed in his career. Uh, Jeff, podcasts, writes, speaks, and consults with architects, helping them in the marketing, leadership, and management of their firms. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, and we've had some other architects as guests before, and I always like asking them this question. Um What drove you to pursue architecture as a career? I know I grew up looking at watching Mr. Brady carry that set of plans through the Kings Island theme park and thought, I want to be an architect someday, isn't where I ended up being, but curious, what what, uh, kind of encouraged you along this path?
0: Uh, uh, I don't guess it was Mike Brady, Um, but uh, both of my parents grew up on farms, and so You know, thinking back as a as a little kid, I grew up around agrarian architecture, big barns, and um, you know, some sometimes really old farmhouses and things like that. Um, Then, when I was a kid, my dad was was uh, transferred to Chicago, and we we moved up there. And um, mom has always been a lifelong learner, and so one of the things that we did was went to all of the Frank Roy... Frank Lloyd Wright houses. Um, I think I've seen every single one and been through every one that's been opened uh, in uh, in the Chicago area, Oak Park, and and mm-hmm. uh, others, and as well as Unity Temple and some of his other projects. have been to Spring Green, to Taliesin, and um, yes. and and that's that was probably those were probably the two biggest influences. Uh, I did a, an independent study project in high school that started with me basically redrawing some old architecture, uh Frank Lloyd Wright and others, and and ended with me uh designing a domed stadium. And so that I guess at that point I was I was all in um and just had to find the right architecture school to go to, I guess.
1: Oh, very cool. Neat stuff. I uh several years ago uh, had visited his uh, Frank Lloyd Wright studio in Oak Park. And uh, that was a neat tour. And I was out at Taliesin West a couple of years ago, but uh, actually we've had the opportunity as a metal roof manufacturer, a couple of private residences that he designed there in Chicago area. uh, We have provided roofing for over the years. Uh, We've got one particular product that seems to lend itself real well to his design. So That's always, always exciting when we get those opportunities. Um, as i kind of alluded earlier um, rather than doing so much you know building design today your focus is on helping other architects be better um, be more successful at running their businesses Um, i want to hear more about what that looks like but first i want to ask you um, i'm just kind of curious do you think there is intangible benefits when an architect is able to build those systems into their business to be better at managing and marketing? Does that end up freeing up their creativity at all? You think for for their real work, so to speak? I I think it does.
0: Uh, a lot of my clients, so so I work all across professional services, but a lot of those clients are architects because you know that's what my degrees are in um but but it's the same business model you know architects attorneys accountants engineers a lot of contractors very similar business model different math but um i i think if if you if you have a business that runs well right if you have the systems in place that give you the opportunity to not worry about the day-to-day. I mean, it's always there, right? We're always writing checks for our taxes. We're always uh, doing the invoicing and, and the marketing and the business development, all those things. But if those things are running smoothly, it leaves a lot more time and energy and space in your brain to do the creative work. So one of the things that I talk about is this idea of... Creating a better business that gives you the freedom to be a better architect, right? That gives you the freedom to practice the things that you want to uh, do. There are a lot of people right now that I'm talking to. Uh, in fact, I've, I've been serving 300 firm leaders over the past month or so with just one question. You know, what's, what's your biggest struggle right now? The most common response to that question is overwhelm. And, you know, what's interesting about that is you've got to follow up and go, okay, what does that mean? Right. And it means right. a lot of things. The second most common response is time, time management, lack of time. Third most common is hiring. I need help. So all, all of those are linked together. And so you start to, to uh, sort of peel that onion and find out, Overwhelmed to me means something different than overwhelmed to you does and and to the third person, to the fourth person. A, a big part in a lot of those answers is they've got a lot of work, but it's not necessarily the work that they want to work on, right? They, they you know, mid-pandemic, they're taking projects because they're scared, right? They don't know what's around the corner. They don't know what's coming next. So they're taking on clients, they're taking on projects that given a different scenario, they might not have taken on. So I, you know, the way that I define that is they're not working for their ideal clients necessarily. Um, When we can, when we can be hitting on all cylinders and when we can get the marketing right, the business development, right, getting all these things, right. And we're working primarily I mean, we're, we're in the real world, right? We're, I'm not, I'm not going to say that you're always going to be working with your ideal client, but if that can be our focus and we can focus on attracting those ideal clients and working with those ideal clients and saying no to those that are not, because you're not the right architect for every client and every client's not the right client for you. Everybody needs to get really comfortable with that idea. Same for contractors, same for attorneys and, and everybody else. Um, but when we can focus on that ideal client, that opens up a lot of space in the in your brain. You know, it's we're not we're not worried about okay, how are we going to explain our way out of this, or how are we going to negotiate this, or oh my gosh, you know, do I need to call the insurance company to uh, to talk about a conflict or talk to the attorney about a potential uh, litigious situation or whatever it is? Um, so in the ideal world. Yes, if you can build a good business, you can be more creative because it's opening opening up more opportunity to be creative and spending less time you know on, on those things that you should have had processes for or those things that you should have had systems for but you cobble it together and you recreate the wheel every every single month when you do your in, your uh, invoicing. That's you know, probably the one of the easiest examples, but uh, but uh, so yeah, that was a really long answer to say yes.
1: No, it makes a lot of sense. I, I remember a number of years ago, I was working with a uh, business system uh, systemization expert. Uh, To try to help build some systems into our business. And I remember, and you talked about overwhelm. I remember when I first started with him, uh, one of the first things he asked me was he said, um, Todd, make a list of, let's capture the low-hanging fruit. Let's, Let's make a list of the things that frustrate you the most, the things that take the most time that you know shouldn't be. And uh, so I I spent a weekend making my list and gave it to him on Monday, and he was expecting a list of maybe a dozen things at the most. I had like six, literally six typed pages of things. Uh, So he kind of quickly saw, oh my goodness, this guy needs a lot of help. And and, and certainly it did make a big difference, Um, you know, even in terms of my own productivity once I was able to get some of those standard things just where they happened automatically. And I wasn't aware that you did work with, or I'd missed that you work with a lot of um, other professional trades as well. Um, Is marketing one of the big things you help them focus on, or are there other areas of their businesses you help them with as well?
0: Marketing, business development, branding—that's um, th- the cornerstone of what I do. But but I I touch on all of those, uh, all of the business aspects, um, management consulting, if you want to call it that. But um, the you know my 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 focus is essentially professional practice. It's how do you how do you build a business? How do you run a business? Um, my sweet spot is, and and greatest expertise is in the marketing, the communications, the business development, the branding, those those types of things. But, um, but those things don't exist in a vacuum, right? And and all of these things are tied together. I I uh, I have a podcast called uh, the Build Your Brand Podcast, and I'll talk about the the whole thing as you can imagine is about branding. Um and i talk about brand a lot of times in terms of a triangle. And so you've got this triangle that is your business and your brand is in the center of the triangle. And so on on one side of the triangle is your marketing, your business development, your sales, you know whatever you call it in your, you know, your particular industry. And that makes sense, right? Okay, yeah, sure, brand brand is over there with with marketing and such. But on the other another side of the triangle is your um, employee experience, it's your culture. That's also part of your brand. And then on the third side of your triangle is your client or your customer experience. It's also part of your brand. And the, the point of the, the whole analogy is that the brand is in the center of that and it's both informed by all of those pieces of your, of your business, all those aspects of your business, but supports all of those aspects of your business. And so, sometimes I'll be doing a talk and, and somebody will say, well, culture is the most important part of our business. There's a lot of people that will say that, especially today. Culture is the most important part of our business. And I say, it can't be. It's a very important part of your business. But if we think about that triangle, right? If you have a triangle, a geometric triangle, if you take one of the sides away, it's not a triangle anymore. Or you know, for the contractors and engineers that are out there, if it's a structural triangle, if one of those legs of the the triangle or the truss, I guess in that case, is significantly more or or less uh, stronger or or weaker than any of the other sides, then the whole thing collapses. So yes, your culture is important, or yes, your client or customer experience is important, but they all. They all work together. They all have to work together. They have to have that balance. And so when I talk about brand, we do talk about the marketing business development, but we also talk about the culture. We also talk talk about the operations, and it's at the center of all of it. There's a great quote from a lot of people attribute it to uh, Jeff Bezos, but I think it actually came from Marty Neumeier, who's sort of the the godfather of modern branding, uh, but whoever said it first, I don't care. Uh, but it, but basically, it says your brand is what other people say about you when you're not in the room. So, if we think about the marketing and business development side, you know, what does the marketplace say about your company? What does the marketplace say about your work? If we think about the employee side, you know, your employees are talking. Whether it's around the water cooler or it's on the street, you know they 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 uh they they go to church on Sunday and somebody asks them about you know whatever it is that they do or they go to a networking event, you know they're talking. So that's the employer brand at that point. You know what's it like to work there? The culture piece of it. And then so many people in professional services, so many people in, in the AEC industry rely on repeat clients and referrals as you know maybe as much as 80% or more of their business that's where that client experience you know that client experience brand you know what are your current clients or customers saying what are your past customers or clients saying so that's that's the third side of the triangle is all of that supports and informs your brand so again another long answer to the question but um, I touch on all of it, but it all kind of comes back to back to that aspect of it.
2: No, I, I love that analogy and, and putting in <clears throat> putting that context together. I'm curious as you're working with your clients who are dealing with all this overwhelm and just trying to tread water and survive. Is there one side that is it seems consistent is is more, most likely to be uh, out of whack or, or not in balance with the others? I, I suppose you know, every situation is different,
0: but, um, an awful lot of the time when we're talking about overwhelm and, and I got an, I got an email a week or two ago from a contractor that was inquiring about, you know, how I could help them. And we started talking and, um, he said, you know, we're really busy right now. Okay. Why are you reaching out to me? Right. Why, what, what do you need help with? Um, You know, so I started asking questions and and one question was, okay, you're really busy, but are all the projects you're working on projects that you really want to work on? Or are they projects that are just, you know, filling the pipeline, so to speak? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, almost none of the projects are the projects that we really want to work on. And I, I think... I think a lot of times it comes back to have you actually defined who your ideal client is. And, and many times that answer is no. There you know, you think about architects, engineers, contractors, whoever, attorneys. This is this is the type of project that we do. We design houses or we work on mergers and acquisitions or we build fire stations and you know, that's, that's the thing, that's the type of project, but then they don't ever make the leap to who are the clients. And so I've got, a, I've got a client that has an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and that particular office does a lot of fire stations. And so if we just use them as an example, and we say in 2022, maybe they'll do 10 fire station projects. And if we completely oversimplify the situation and we say that the fire chief is the client for a fire station project, then we know, okay, we've got 10 projects, 10 fire chiefs. We know for a fact, because we're dealing with human beings, that there's no way in the world that all 10 of those fire chiefs are going to fall into our definition. And it's a completely subjective definition, but Our definition of who our ideal client is. You know, some may have big dreams and small budgets. Some may not um, respect professionals and professionalism and processes. Um, Some might not be nice people, you know, however you define who your ideal client is. Um, But then some will be, right? And so the focus then is. How do I find those eight or those six or whatever fire chiefs that actually fall have the project type that we want to do, the fire station, and are also our ideal client? Because those are the ones we're going to perform best for and with. Um, I get asked a lot of times to talk about, uh, actually, more, more, two or three times this year, I guess it was someone reach out and say, Hey, can you come talk about building a profitable firm? Yeah. I'd love to come talk about building a profitable firm. It's probably, I'm probably not going to say what you think I'm going to say, but I'll talk about it. And so I'll do this presentation and I'm, I'm in Indianapolis, which we like to call the racing capital of the world. Racing's a big deal here with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, so, engines, right, uh, means something around here. I don't know if it resonates with anybody else or not, but you know, use the analogy of of building a profit engine. You know, you can you can build the best profit engine that a construction company has ever seen or an architecture firm has ever seen. You can have all the systems in place: your invoicing, your project management, your business development. You can have the best. Profit engine ever. But if you put the wrong kind of fuel into the engine, what happens? Right? It doesn't run. Right? We can take one of these racing teams here that run 232 miles an hour around this oval that's over here. And if you put the wrong fuel into that engine, they're not going to make it a lap. Right? Sure. So if we build this profit engine, but we're not focused on the ideal client. As as the fuel, we've got a problem. You know, you've got that that client that um, is difficult for whatever reason. That you got all the way through the uh, design process, and then they wanted to go back and and revisit something that you talked about three months ago, right? That's it's really really hard to be profitable when you know they're not adhering to your processes you know they're not adhering to that they're they're doing their thing right they're being themselves so we have to get the people in that align with this profit engine with everything that we're doing sure it starts with your ideal client so that that's it's not it's not the it's not the answer to to every single situation but it is it is a um, it's a big piece of it for a lot of uh, a lot of people out there
2: and it's a real different perspective than a lot of people take. You know, we were at lunch today. It was interesting um, that it timed out this way. But we were at lunch talking about a situation we're dealing with here, and our our comment was, "Man, they should have just walked away from that job, you know, before they had ever started. Just decided that they this was not the project for them, and it would have been a lot easier." Um, so, changing that perspective from just being beholden to anyone who says they want your services to who do we want to work for and reverse engineer it from there um, yeah. creates a more healthy reality for everybody ultimately. Yeah, it, it sure does. I mean, I, I, I remember a time
0: in is probably 2008, you know, the economy is, it was starting to crash and I went to a meeting with prospective clients and I came back and I think it was that same day, we had, a, we had a staff meeting and I sat down with our staff and I said, Here, here's seven reasons we should not take this project, right? Here's the red flags, put it that way. Seven reasons we shouldn't take the project. But I also know that if we don't take this project, then we're going to be looking at each other Monday morning going, what do you want to do now? Because we had no, you know, we'd had no work, we had nothing in the pipeline. And so we, we took that project. And, you know, the best thing that came out of that project was it gave me some of the most horrific war stories to tell. Um, it, it, I found some of the worst clients I'd ever worked with in my entire life and found some of the worst human beings I had ever worked with in my entire life. It culminates with me being, standing on the... Uh, the. Uh, Front porch of somebody's house being held at gunpoint by federal marshals, which we'll, we can talk about that offline. Well,
1: that's a story.
0: <laughs> it's oh, it's a story. But but that's one of those things, right? Somebody needs our help, somebody wants our services. Here's seven reasons we shouldn't. And I ignored them, right? We all we all have to deal with our own realities, right? Right. right. And there's a lot of fear, right? If we turn this down, what are we gonna do next? But Hindsight being 2020, and in retrospect, what I would have done with that today is say, "Okay, here's seven reasons. I don't know what we're going to have Monday, but we're not taking it. But I also know that we would spend X number of hours ramping up and onboarding. Right? We'd start. We would spend some amount of time working into this project that we would not have been invoicing for anyway. We're going to take that time." And we're going to be very, very intentional about investing that time on finding the next project, right? And, and at that point, the time spent is a wash, but we come out with a project that we really should, and a client we really should be working with rather than what turns into a horror story. And, um, it, you know, we, did, we didn't do, do that. We, you know, I made that decision, you know, and um, it, it did turn into a horror story and, you know, that's lessons learned.
1: Well, like you said, it's given you a lot of good examples to bring to your clients now. And yeah. yeah. So so do you find that most people, most of your clients have some idea of who their ideal client is, or do you have to walk them through a process oftentimes of even discovering that? And and if so, is that based a lot on their interests, their skill sets, the skill sets of their people? What what kind of determines that?
0: Yeah. I, I think deep down, many of them do, but they've never tried to express it. Sure. And and so then their reaction is, well, I don't know who my ideal client is, but I, d- deep down they do. Um, so I, I do have a process and I always talk about your ideal client having three facets. One being demographic. And I think we all pretty much understand what the demographics are. Um, the second facet being geographic. So uh i've got a client over in um uh in england that prefers to only work on projects that are within walking distance of their office which is fantastic wow obviously there's a lot of density right to the to the area but that's their geographic you know that's again it's all subjective so they said we need to be able to walk which is essentially a mile radius around the office um it, it, in in American measurements, <laughs> the um, but some may say, "Hey, I'm, I'll do projects within a three hour drive of Indianapolis, or I, I'll work on projects internationally." You know, again, it's subjective. What what's the geographic? How are you defining this? So that's the second facet, and then the third facet is psychographics, and this is this is a really important aspect. Because at the end of the day, and I heard this one time, it was a is a real epiphany for me. Uh, at the end of the day, when we're talking about our ideal clients, when we're looking for our, for our ideal clients, we're looking for people that are like us. We're looking for people that kind of mirror us. We're talking about beliefs. We're talking about values. And um, you know, th- we're looking for that type of alignment. And you may look at that and go oh, you know I design houses or I build houses or office buildings or whatever you know I I design houses for multimillionaires I'm not a multimillionaire well okay that was a that was a demographic thing right but I have never ever heard a client say you know what I um I am a a born again christian Believer in Christ, and I only want to work with atheists. Sure, doesn't happen. Right. Or I am a, uh, uh, when it comes to politics, I am a left wing liberal, liber- liberal, and I only want to work with um, hardline right-wing mm-hmm. right wing conservatives. Right. It doesn't happen. We're looking for people that we align with. those, you know, maybe religion and politics is the greatest example to use, but we're, we're looking for people that believe things that we believe that value things that we value. And so a lot of times, some, a lot of times it's unconscious, you know, Hey, you know, I just, we talked about, you know, this and that the other, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it is what I believe. It is what I value those types of things. And, and, an easy way to to start out that that exploration is: Who are the people that you like working with the most? Who are the people that you do your best work for? Um, who are the people that value you the most? And who are the people that respect your process? That's a big one. It's a big deal, you know, and what all of us do, right? Sure. But um, you know, it's 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 going to be those people that you perform best for ultimately. And you can do things like, you know, look at your five favorite clients. You know, what, what are, if we break them into those three facets, how are they made up? And then I always flip it around and say, who are your five least favorite clients? Because we can learn a lot by contrasting those. So, um, so there, you know, there, there, there's definitely a process and for 99.9% of my clients, we, we have to walk through that process.
1: Interesting.
2: It makes a lot of sense because if you see the if you see the world completely differently from whoever you're working with, you're probably going to see the project or situation or have a hard time getting to, them what yeah. they
1: need and, and what they want. And you're going to relate yeah. better to them. The closer you are in alignment with them. I I saw where where you're working uh, with uh, students at your alma mater, Ball State. Um, is that also teaching them the business side, the the development side, the marketing side of of architecture? Is that uh, part of what you're working with there?
0: It it is. It definitely is. When the dean approached me and asked me if I would be interested in in, uh, teaching pro practice, uh, I I jumped at it, first of all. But I said, uh, I would love to do that if I can teach it like a startup incubator, and I don't think they I don't think they knew what, what they were saying yes to, but they said yes. <laughs> um and one of the reasons for that is, and this this extends definitely across the AEC world, but you know, if I think about I I graduated 30 years ago or so, something like that now. Um and the way that pro practice is taught today is Exactly the same. In fact, the syllabus that was shared with me from the, the uh, professor that I was I was replacing at that point may very well have been the exact same syllabus that I had when I was in school, mm-hmm. uh, down to a couple of speakers actually. <laughs> um, and you know, and I thought about that for a minute, and I went, okay, what else do we know? What else do we know of? in the past 30 years that has not changed at all? And the answer is nothing, right? And the construction industry takes a lot of criticism and, and probably rightfully so for not having evolved, not having progressed in 50 years. I mean, if, if I were to say that about architecture, I'd say 80 years, you know, the, the sort of the traditional, uh, practice model for architecture firms probably hasn't changed in in something like 80 years, um, as a rule, and I don't I don't think it can continue that way. I think with all the disruption that happens with technologies and you know all the things that are going on, the, the practice model is going to have to evolve. And so that's my goal. Yes, uh, obviously we have to talk about ethics, and obviously we have to talk about. Uh, fiduciary responsibilities and contracts and all those things that you have to have to talk about. But the bulk of my class is basically running an incubator or a business plan competition. So their big project is they have to come up with an idea. It doesn't have to be an architecture firm. It doesn't have to be um, a services anything. You know, some students have done apps and some have done different platforms. but uh, we we go through the semester, And we flesh out the ideas and put it into a, uh, into a business plan. And then it's about, about two weeks from when we're recording, two and a half weeks from when we're recording this, um, they have pitch night. So it's basically shark Tank, the TV show, um, I bring in three or four sharks, so to speak. And, uh, the, uh, they all pitch their ideas and see what the sharks have to say about it. But I, I always tell the students, you know, some of you may not ever aspire to own your own business or be in a position of leadership. But I think by understanding what it takes to start and to run a business, um, sustain a business, and we talk about exit plans and, you know, secession plans and things like that, if you can under, under, if you can understand all of those things, at the very least, you can be a better employee at the best or, or at the most, maybe is a better way to say that you have the ability to go out and start your own thing. If that's what you want to do or wherever you fall on that, on that spectrum. So, um, so, you know, it's a, it's an interesting experiment and some students love it and some students hate it and as expected. And, um, and that's just fine, but, uh, hopefully it prepares them for something different than we were, Talking about thirty years ago.
1: Yeah, no doubt it's a very valuable class, and I and I hear that a lot. I mean, you know, you hear an attorney say, you know, I went to law school and I learned law, but I didn't learn how to run a firm of of lawyers. Yep. Um, pastors will say, I learned theology, but I sure didn't learn how to run a church. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty interesting.
0: That, that that's one of the ironies, and and that's why I work across professional services because that's true for all the professional services they learn. You know in architecture school we learned architecture like you said the attorneys same thing so you know how do we how do we learn the the business side of this because it is it's a business
1: i thought it was pretty neat my son recently graduated from engineering or with an engineering degree and They had him take two courses in ethics, um, and what it means to be a professional engineer. And I I was impressed they were doing that in the midst of all the, uh, theoretical stuff and all the other stuff he was doing.
0: Yeah, that's good. It's important.
1: Yeah. So I know that you spent a lot of time teaching folks, teaching your clients how to tell stories. Um, what's that look like? Why, and why do you find that to be a meaningful way to market a business?
0: It's a good question. It, um, I guess, it goes first to the fact that our brains are wired to latch to stories and to understand stories. You know, if you think about history and the way that we've evolved as as a species, you know, before we had writing, um, you know, c- we were communicating, and it had to be in a in a meaningful and and impactful way. Uh, you know, starting with just oral tools right? And none, none of that on that level has changed. Of course we can read and we can write and do things like that now, but stories are still the most effective way to communicate, especially when we need it to be memorable and we need it to be impactful. And so an easy example in, in the, um, maybe in the architecture world, you know, sometimes I work with clients that have made a shortlist, right? They're competing for a project. They made the shortlist. They go into the room for the shortlist interview and they're speaking with a group of people, you know, a group of theoretically, a group of decision makers. But the ultimate decision maker may not even be in the room, right? In a lot of cases, the ultimate decision maker is not in the room. Even if they are, you're still dealing with a group of people. So you need to get someone or a group of someone to advocate for you, right? Because they're gonna, all the interviews happen and then they go off and they deliberate and they decide who they're gonna hire for this project. You need to have people advocate for you, carry your flag for you. And if you go in and you make a presentation that sounds like everybody else, that looks like everybody else, that is not memorable because it sounds and looks like everybody else. There's no way that these people are going to be able, there's no way that they're going to want to advocate for you, but they won't be able to advocate for you. You basically got to give them the flag to carry. So storytelling really comes in, and in that situation or in presenting to a potential client or even a sales call, You go out on a sales call to sell metal roofing, and well, you know, here's you know this this feature and that feature, and you know this that and the other, and they don't even they don't know what you're talking about, right? They're not metal roofing experts. So how do you, when they're talking to two or three different roofing companies, um, how do you be memorable and compelling, you know, and all of these things? You tell them a great story you know, it's a story that talks about the problems that they have, the solution for their problems and the results that they'll see right after, after your work is done. That's the things that they latch onto. It's not the number of mills or the, the gauge or the reflectivity or, you know, whatever, whatever you're talking about. It's, oh, so yeah, they can, they can do this and when it's all over, we're going to have this result. We're going to, you know, we're going to accomplish this thing. Um, that this, the storytelling is just super, super powerful. Um, when it comes down to, to selling, convincing, compelling, you know, the, those types of things, um, and, and, being memorable. And, and again, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room they're going to tell a story about you so why not give them the story that you want them to tell
1: i i love that example of you know the fact that the ultimate decision maker may not be there and so if you give the others a story to bring back that's going to really be a leg up on things that's that's good um so, so I certainly and and we talk to our contractors a lot about that. Also, even when they're working with property owners, hey, tell stories of other projects, other needs that you've met, um, the ways that you have solved problems, and those are the memorable things. and And again, they they show that problem solving ability. So I really like that. How 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 about social media today? Is that something that you encourage? I don't think we normally think of people in professional trades, architects, attorneys, engineers, do- engineers, doctors as using social media, but yet it seems like a prime platform to, for them to get in front of all kinds of people that could be clients.
0: Oh, it, it definitely is. You know, and, and a lot of people ask, well, what's the best social media platform to be on? And you know, I don't know. I don't know what the best platform is. There's, Whoever your ideal client is, there's some of them on every platform. I mean, that's you know they're distributed everywhere. Can you find a higher uh, concentration on Facebook or on TikTok or whatever? Maybe, maybe you can, but but you know, think of the social media as a tool. You know what? A, what a great storytelling tool. Um, you know, the the people will ask, well. Again, back to the platform. And I I start with what do you like to do? You know, do you like to take pictures? Are you, do you, do you like to record your voice? Uh, Are you comfortable being on camera? Um, Would you prefer to write? Because whatever your answer to that is, there's a platform that's essentially built specifically for that at this point in time. And um, point being, if you're, if you're using a medium that you already enjoy using, that you're already comfortable with, I'm pretty sure you'll keep doing that, right? But if I say, hey, you need to be on on TikTok and you need to be filming yourself talking to the camera or whatever, and you go, I hate I hate that, but okay, I'll take your advice. I'll give you a week before you give <laughs> that up, right? Yeah. It's just not going to be sustainable. So, you know, whatever whatever the medium is, whatever the platform is, just going back to what you just said, you know what are the problems that your ideal client has? You make a list of those. You, you already know what they are, right? You're already out there selling your services or your wares or whatever it is that you do. What are the problems? And think in terms of, I always make up this formula called P plus S equals R, problem plus solution equals result. So your clients or customers have a problem they may not call it a problem, but it's a problem. They've raised their hand and they're looking for someone to solve this thing. They're looking to hire somebody. What's the solution that they're looking for? That's important, right? You know, your your roofing or your your design or whatever it is is going to solve this problem for them. But what they really value is the result that comes after that right? The roof stopped leaking and now we don't have to worry about this or whatever Whatever the result of your work is. That's what they really value. So tell stories about the problem, the solution, and especially the result, right? Now this client doesn't have to to worry about this or now this client has a kitchen where the entire family can gather without the stress of bumping into each other and all of this, you know, if, if it's a kitchen renovation or something like that. But it's, All of these platforms are great places for you to talk about the problems, the solutions, and especially the results in whatever medium, you know, podcast or video or or whatever it is.
1: I'm hearing a little bit as you speak, I'm reminded a little bit of Donald Miller's story brand. Oh, sure. Uh, So I I assume you've been in that, which I never quite understood the whole shift from sort of a quasi-theologian to a marketing expert, but there's good (laughs) stuff in there. Uh, You know, there there really is. So a lot of it, you know, I, I love, you know, what I'm hearing here is you'll help people focus on drawing out their client's story and then relating stories of past clients to them that sort of feed and support off that and show a solution.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you think you know, what what does whatever the last project that you completed was. What does it have to do with your next with your next client? Right? That's that's always the real question. You know, we we did this, we did that. That's great that's good. You were able to sell roofing or you were able to sell design services or law, legal services or whatever it was. That means that you completed projects. You sold them and you completed them. What does that have to do with the next one, with this prospective client, someone that's raised their hand and says, hey, I need, I need help with this. That's, that's the key to everything, right? Being able to say, okay, we did this and this is what that means to you. You know, this is the result that you could also see, you know, if we do this. And so, yeah, it's when I, when I start out talking about your ideal client, it's all about your ideal client, right? It's not about you to, to go to Donald Miller, to talk about Donald Miller and story brand. You cannot be the hero of your own story, right? Your client has to be the hero. Your ideal client has to be the hero of the story. So we make it. We make the story about them. We make the story something that I think he says this way all the time. You make it a story that they can imagine themselves being a part of. And that's how you tie the past
2: project to the future project. In his definition of a story, the one sentence definition has always been helpful for me to wrap my head around. Of like, okay, I can think of all sorts of stories, but what are the meaningful stories or what are really shooting here? And it's that hero overcoming conflict. To accomplish something meaningful i think i paraphrase the second half of that but that's the the gist of it the hero the conflict and then the ultimate solution or result like you're saying um, that that's been helpful kind of framework and both in selling and understanding what their conflict is that we're trying to help them accomplish and, and kind of resolve um, and then also what stories are meaningful that were taken out in our marketing as well yeah yeah absolutely every every one of them every one of your clients or customers
0: right? They're their hero and they 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 want to accomplish something. It's the roofs leaking or whatever the thing is they they have obstacles in their way and then that becomes your job, right? How do you eliminate those obstacles and help them achieve these things and and um, and then realize this result, realize this this victory or whatever at the, at the end. And if, if your sale, if you can train your salespeople to do that or your business development people or your marketing people in, you know, for social media posts or on the website, you, you're going to have some really, really effective communications because those customers or clients see themselves in that story. Right. Again, if we know who our ideal client is and we know the problems of our ideal clients, then we know the problems of our next ideal clients, right? And so it you know it sort of works together in an ecosystem. And um, you know I, I I love that you brought up Donald Miller, and again I recommend um, building a story brand. The, the podcast it's it's been rebranded now to Business Made Simple, but I recommend all of all of the stuff that that he and his company do. But at the same time, it's not new, right? It goes all the way back to, right. to Aristotle, right? You know, this this uh, story framework that we're really talking about is, uh, and that's one of the reasons it's effective, you know, is that it goes all the way back to the Greeks. And, um, and it just, we keep refining it and refining it and figure out, figuring out better and better applications for it.
1: Do you think some of the more disruptive, uh, architectural firms right now, um, are the ones who are really zeroing in on that ideal client, uh, rather than trying to be a one size fits all, uh, type of firm?
0: I, I, I definitely think so. I think, you know, we're, this goes in cycles, right? Um, Right now, you have a lot of really large firms that will continue to get larger and, and larger. They're not going to. They're not likely to be the ones that are very disruptive.
1: Interesting.
0: They'll ha- will have more boutique firms that are more nimble, more flexible. Um, anytime expertise comes into play, of course, we're focused on very specific things. You know, uh, I use the example all the time that it freaks people out when I, when I walk them through this, but I say, you know what, if you're an architect and let's say you design restaurants, who's your ideal client? Well, it can't be restaurant owners. Because if we think about how many restaurant owners there are in the world, it's gotta be you know, I don't know, ten million, it's a hundred million, a, a lot. So it's a, it's a really big number. Uh, it's more fingers and toes than I have. Um, so then, how do we start to narrow that down? Well, let's just say it's restaurant owners in the United States. Still a really big number. It's too big a number. Okay. Well, how about restaurant owners in Indiana, where I live? That's still a pretty big number. It's, it's got to be in the thousands, probably tens of thousands. Okay, how do I narrow that down some more? Well, I'm in Indianapolis, so let's go to Indianapolis, still at thousands. So let's go uh, independent restaurant owners. So no McDonald's, no Chili's, no Texas Roadhouse. I'm thinking of what's down (laughs) the street. None of them. It's going to be only independent restaurant owners. All right, well, now that drops significantly, right? So maybe we're to a couple of hundred at this point. Still, quite a few. So, what if we say my ideal client is going to be independent restaurant owners in Indianapolis that have one location and twenty seats in the restaurant? Well, now all of a sudden we're down to like ten people, and this is where people start freaking out. It's like <laughs> I can't, I can't build a firm, you know, I can't, I can't build, build a off business. That. Yeah, exactly. But but hear me out, right? So. You got 10, your, your, your group of ideal clients is 10 people. And we're recording this on a Friday, so I'm going to give you it till next week. By the end of next week, you can have a conversation with all 10 of those people. Think about how easy it would be to have a conversation with those 10 people get them on the phone, go to coffee, you know, whatever. You can have a conversation, a good, meaningful conversation with all 10 of those people by the end of next week. And what happens if you have a good, meaningful conversation with all 10 of those people is, number one, you know more about their business than any of your competitors do because they did not go to the effort of narrowing it down to 10 and having these 10 conversations. So that's the first thing. Number two, you are seen by these ten people as the go-to in their industry. Right? You're talking to all of them. You're learning about their business. Um, they're they're quite possibly the only person of your type—architect or engineer or contractor or whatever you are. They're probably the only one of your type that they know. So all of a sudden, they start perceiving you as the go-to, if not the expert and number 3 now you probably know more about their business than any one of them do because you now have the collective knowledge of those 10 people right and and talking about their businesses again good meaningful conversations you have got it's got to be a quality conversation so now you know you know what what there is to know about the what was it Indianapolis one location independent 20 seat restaurants There's still only 10 potential clients. But once we get that granular about any industry, about any type of client, it becomes a very tight knit community. And so those restaurant owners that have one location in Indianapolis with 20 seats, they know, you know, you're, you're talking to, to one of those restaurant owners and he has a friend also in Indianapolis and she has one location, but she's got 30 seats, right? So she's outside of the 10, but they're good friends. It's a very, very similar business. And so they go to coffee and she says, you know what, we're, we're struggling with this, you know, with this and figuring this out. And he says, Oh, you need to go talk to Jeff because we had that exact same problem and he showed us how to fix it. And so now those 10 people help you grow back out, right? They help you increase that that number. And back to, you know, the, the meat of your question about innovation and disruption. If I know those 10 people and their business is better than anybody else, I can figure out what they need. I can figure out how to help them in ways that no one else is. And so when I'm doing this with architects, I say, well, you know, as an architect, you provide this breadth of services from let's say feasibility study through construction administration that's a huge swath of services but you know so much about these 10 people and their businesses you've realized that the sweet spot based on the problems that they have today is right here you know it's in it's in this study on kitchen layout or whatever whatever that thing is you can lead with that and you can start to be disruptive because you're really focused on the one thing that's going to move them furthest fastest. And that's when we have the Sometimes I call it this, you, you know, we we get to know them. We start to understand them. We develop empathy for them, even to the level of radical empathy, right? We know more about them and what they think and how they think and how they tick and what their problems are than anybody else does. If we get to that point that's when the disruption piece of it becomes really easy because we're seeing what they need and what they want and we're able to deliver in ways that no one else is able to deliver because they're not seeing it at that level. So we may say, you know what? Instead of pitching, hey, I'm an architect with all of these services, let me help you make your business better by by changing this kitchen layout, making it more efficient and making the the uh, the path through the restaurant uh, more efficient, so servers are not bumping into each other and dropping plates, or creating some outdoor space. So now, even with COVID regulations and things like that, we have more space and more comfortable areas to wait, and we can get more people in the door and keep them there longer. And you know, think all all those types of things, and we can start to disrupt because we know more. About that than anybody else does, and it it almost becomes natural at that point. Most most organizations are not getting that granular.
1: Yeah, that's a great story about you know even teaching someone how to narrow down and focus on that ideal client. And I can certainly see um, you know anyone out there who's listening or watching that uh, is is in construction or design. Man, you'd have a wealth of information. Ways to help them uh, really narrow those things down. That's that's a great story. Well, we're really getting close to the end of our time, so I want to squeeze in something that we like to do uh, at the end of uh, each episode of Construction Disruption, and that's uh, what we call our rapid fire questions. Now, this is only if you're willing to do it, but this range, of, this is a, a series of seven questions maybe some silly, maybe some serious, um, your only commitment is to give us whatever first answer comes to mind. If anything, every once in a while we stump someone and they got nothing and that's okay too. Um, and our audience needs to understand if you agree to this, then, uh, you have no idea what we're about to ask. So I, I have to ask Jeff Eccles, are you up to the challenge of rapid fire?
0: I am nervous, but I'm up to the challenge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I promise it'll be harmless. Great. Well, let's do this, and then we'll wrap up here in a, with a couple other quick questions then. Okay, here we go. Rapid fire. Well, it's holiday season time, time of uh, lots of eating, so I have to ask, cake or pie? Pie. Pie, I'm that too.
2: A favorite pie?
0: Um, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid. I'm, I'm going to say French silk. You know, based, uh-huh. anything that's got a lot of chocolate,
1: there you go. <laughs> tasty. Well, well, you just got a you just got a bonus eighth question there. So <laughs> Sorry, <that's okay. laughs> I'm too curious. I
2: always ask ask for a rapid fire. So.
1: Favorite childhood book or television show?
0: Mm, um, television show might be a tie between I Love Lucy and The Honeymooners because my mom and I used to watch those late at night.
1: Good, good shows. Good stuff. Least favorite word. Oh man.
0: <laughs> least, least favorite word. I This, this may rub some people the wrong way, but, uh, I'm going to say mansplaining <laughs> because, uh, I don't like the word for some reason, but it also keeps me in check and, and makes me accountable and aware that, um, I don't have to have the last word or know anything or, or even try to explain anything to anyone that may not need it.
1: That's a great answer. Um, what surprises people about you when they learn it? Uh, (laughs) to be, to be honest,
0: it's probably either, um, how old I am or how tall I am. Um, a lot of people see me online a lot and they don't realize that I'm six, three. Um, and, um, and some people sometimes, although somebody told me today that this scruff that's growing on my face right now, makes me look older, but I'm, I'm uh, 51 and, uh, some people think I look younger than that, I guess.
1: Good stuff. Uh, what subject do you wish you knew more about?
0: Um, neuroscience, because it's the basis of a lot of what I talk about. Mm-hmm. The empathy piece of it, a lot, a lot of the story brand is, is built on, on neuroscience as well. And I've studied it quite a bit, but there's a lot out there. Um, and I'm really curious at how um, learning more about how it makes us tick and how it makes us better professionals.
1: Good stuff. I know when we are... Doing sales training, we talk a lot about neuro linguistic programming, and mm-hmm. something I wish I do a whole lot more about. I, yep. I know about enough to be dangerous and maybe impress the least uh, interested person in the room. Maybe sometimes I don't <laughs> know. But uh, how many emails do you get each day? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I am so that that uh, that's my
0: kryptonite. Um, sometimes I check my email every few days. Uh, most of my clients know that's not the best way to communicate with me. Um, so I suspect I get a lot more emails a day than I think I do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, last question. If you were given an all-expenses-paid trip to Akron, Ohio, would you take it? <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Akron. I've worked with clients at Akron. Um, Sure, I'll go back. Sure, why not? There (laughs) you go. And we're not even from Akron, so I had to pick on somebody today.
0: I didn't. I didn't get the uh, the tour through the Goodyear uh, plant or facility headquarters there, so I'll go back and do the tour.
1: Got that to look forward to. Sounds good. Hey, this has been great. Um, I've learned a lot. Been a real pleasure, and I I love what you're doing to help. move businesses forward whether they're from the design industry or or other industries and businesses you're working with um, anything that we haven't covered today that you're really burning to say uh,
0: I, I don't think so necessarily but first of all thank you for the opportunity to be here um, but I, I think about the title of your show construction disruption and just you know an encouragement to everybody out there disruption can sound scary or ominous or whatever, but I mean, we're at a point in time where, um, it, it's really disrupt or be disrupted. Um, so, you know, take in all of the lessons that you learn on, on all the different episodes of this podcast, because it's, it's important, you know, like I said, looking back to when I was in school, there's nothing else around that has not changed in 30 years. Um, and that's only going to accelerate. So uh, keep listening to the show, keep learning the lessons uh, that you hear on the show, and f- find ways to make your business better and your clients' lives better or customers' lives better.
1: Excellent. Um, how, wh- why might someone want to connect with you? I mean, obviously looking for your services, perhaps, but what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? And, uh, I know you're involved with some podcasts. Maybe give us a rundown of where people can hear more of you.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. So if you, if for some reason you want to hear or see more of me, uh, I've got a couple of podcasts. Uh, Build Your Brand podcast. Season one is out, and uh, Jeff is the holdup on getting season two <laughs> published right now, but it should be out soon. Um, I also have a show. I actually do a show every single day called Context and Clarity. Um, four days a week that's inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. But on Thursdays, we call it Context and Clarity Live. It's a simulcast that we broadcast to Facebook, to LinkedIn, to YouTube, to Twitch, and to Twitter all at the same time. We have a guest every Thursday. So we've had some big name guests like Seth Godin and uh, Mike McCallowitz and Pat Flynn and people like that. Uh, but it's... It's basically it's kind of what we talked about now. It, it's lessons learned from these guests about the practice of architecture, the the building of of businesses, and and things like that. So, um, so you can e- even if you're not an architect. I mean, we use the word architect a lot, but it's it's really, especially if you're a small business owner, it's a really valuable show. I mean, the takeaways from some of these people that we talked to are, are just amazing. We talked about risk management yesterday with an insurance, uh, agent and an attorney, um, just fascinating and great information. So that's, that's one place. Um, probably easiest to connect with me on LinkedIn and, um, it's Jeff Eccles. And if you come across a uh, white haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, that's not me. I'm the other one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Uh, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I do hope our uh, so listeners and viewers dig into things a little bit more and uh, learn more about you and connect with you. It's been very good. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Again, I appreciate it.
1: So thank you to everyone for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with our guest Jeff Eccles of Echo Engagement. We ask you, please watch for future episodes of our podcast. We have Lots of great guests on TAP in coming weeks. And uh, don't forget, leave us a review, hopefully a good one, on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Um, Until then, we encourage everyone, change the world for someone, make them smile, bring them some hope, bring them encouragement. All of those are very powerful, yet simple things that we can do to change the world for someone else, one interaction at a time. God bless. Take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off. Until the next episode of Construction Disruption.